Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. I've been a fan of this next composer since first hearing his music in Blades of Glory and Tropic Thunder. This 12-time winner of BMI's Film Music Award is behind the scores of such classics as Marley and Me, The Devil Wears Prada, Dodgeball, I Love You Man, and Semi-Pro. Recently, he's taken on very musically diverse films, ranging from more dramatic scores like A Simple Favor, Destroyer, and Bombshell, to big band action music for Spies in Disguise, poppy and fun music for Trolls World Tour, and the composer is Teddy Shapiro. Teddy, how you doing? Good, good. Glad to be here with you. Awesome. So, uh, Teddy, you were born in Washington, uh, District of Columbia. What was, uh, what was your childhood like? Well, um, you know, I had, I had a very, um, I had a very happy childhood. I, I, that, that's like a part of my life that I hold very dear to me. I started making music. Uh, I started playing the piano when I was around six years old. And so music was always a very important part of my life. But I was also, you know, I was a sports kid and a music kid. And, um, you know, I, I, I was not running on one track from, from my early childhood. Mm-hmm. What kind of sports were you into? Uh, most of them. Football, baseball, basketball, um, and uh, soccer, and later on lacrosse, and, uh, which was, you know, that's, a, that's like an East Coast thing. And... So yeah, I mean that that like I I would say that that I you know as a kid I saw myself as much as a as a, as a sports guy as a music guy. And so you started playing piano and that was all classical? It was it was all classical. Yeah, I mean I I had a pretty traditional um traditional piano upbringing uh with a you know starting in like 4th grade I started studying with a woman named Peggy Frank, who was a really important person in my musical development. She was a really tough teacher. I was a little bit afraid of her, but I also really, really wanted to impress her at, at lessons, which I didn't always do. And she just taught me a lot about playing the piano, about musicianship, about musical interpretation. She was just a, a, a huge figure in, in my musical life. Right. And it seems like you just loved it, I guess, from an early age. Did your parents encourage it? Yeah, they did encourage it. So my mom came from a very musical household. Um, Her her father was a wonderful jazz pianist, not, you know, not not as his job, but just in in life. He had a great ear. You know, whenever I would go over to my grandparents' house, he'd be playing the piano or my grandmother would be playing piano. She was also a jazz pianist uh, and she sang. Um, and so that was just, that was an important aspect of how she grew up. And my mom played a little bit, she played just classical and, and had a handful of pieces that she had retained 
you know, in, in her fingers. But I would say kind of beyond, beyond her abilities as a pianist, music was always sort of held up as an important ethos within, in the family. And my dad, who came from a, you know, a, a very non-artistic background, was always very, very supportive. You know, he, he was more the sports driver in, in the family, but he was always extremely supportive of, of my music. And going from there, I guess, just like playing piano as a kid to like, I don't know, middle school, high school, how did your music taste evolve? How did your relationship with music change? I would say that that in terms of, you know, there was always an interest in classical music and also an interest in pop music. So those two things developed on their own tracks. I would say that in, in the realm of classical music, like I always had a taste for 20th century music and and new music that was just always what got me excited you know Debussy was a really important composer for me as I got into high school like I started listening to Stravinsky and got really into into that as far as non-classical music let's see I mean I started out with the Beatles um, but then in high school, the Smiths were really formative. I think U2 was uh, a band that I really liked, especially sort of earlier on in their career. Um, by the time they got to the Joshua Tree, I, I was too cool for that. And Prince. And uh, in high school, I was definitely kind of into the new wave stuff. Uh, Smiths in particular. And then hip-hop. Like, that. then that was sort of the next big thing in my listening palette in high school was, you know, Public Enemy, De La Soul, N.W.A., Tribe Called Quest. I feel like I didn't get into hip-hop until college, really. And maybe part of that was just being at NYU, where, I mean, the school's so tied to hip-hop. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then well, you went to Brown University first before Juilliard and going to New York. Uh, what was it like being in New York then as a fan of, I mean, it's such a center for classical music and for hip hop at the time. And It was thrilling. So the composition faculty at Juilliard uh, at the time was John Curuliano, uh and my teacher was David Diamond. Milton Babbitt was there. David Del Tredici was teaching there, uh, and, and who else? Robert Beezer, who's a wonderful composer. So you just had amazing, amazing people teaching you one-on-one. And, and then, you know, incredible people coming in. Um, you know, Steve Reich came in, and David Lang came in, and Michael Torkey. And, you know, like, it was just like a, an amazing... Um, it was an amazing place to be, and it was really thrilling. And, you know, I would say that, like, I, I, I came to Juilliard feeling less accomplished than my peers. I definitely had done less writing than, than my peers. But I came to sort of develop a sense of belonging there, and I, I bonded with my, uh, with my classmates. And it was, it was a really thrilling uh, and formative two years. And you were just focusing on composition there? Yeah, I mean, I, I was I was a composition major. I yeah, I wasn't playing. I wasn't good enough to be a pianist at, at Juilliard. There, you know, I, I was studying composition 
and really just immersed in in that world, going to concerts. You know, there were free concerts all the time. You know, even if just recitals by by Juilliard students, but like that was really really good performers. And um, but also you know tickets to be had for the New York Phil and and opera and you know it was just there was a lot that New York has to offer. And you know when when you're going to school at Lincoln Center, there's just a ton of opportunities to you know witness amazing things. I saw Pierre Boulez conduct rehearsals of Rite of Spring, which was amazing. Uh, and, um, you know, just a, a lot of things like that, that, um, you know, I'd like to, th- I probably didn't take advantage of all of it, but, uh, but I took advantage of enough of it that it was, uh, that it was really fulfilling. I was going to ask if you were going to concerts like downtown too, or. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, th- so in terms of like, downtown jazz and avant-garde stuff. The Knitting Factory was really interesting. And then, you know, and then definitely going to hear concerts. I would say that, like, I was probably more going to hear my friends play music in clubs as opposed to going to hear bands. But I did some of that, too. Great. And what were some of the big takeaways in terms of the composition side of Juilliard? Did you Was it mostly just the fact of writing, I assume, very consistently? I mean, I guess I would say that I, you know, I studied with with David Diamond, who his style was kind of sort of strictly modernist, not postmodern at all. Um, And he really taught you to sort of write and think the way that he wrote and think thought about music. And that was a really, uh, it was a useful piece of training. You know, I mean, his approach musically was sort of always to be thinking contrapuntally. That's ultimately not where I would say that I've landed as a composer, and it's certainly not something that's that useful in the realm of film all the time. But it's a good tool to have in your toolbox for when you need it. After I graduated from Juilliard, I studied privately a little bit with John Curigliano, and that was extremely useful. Um, you know, that was a you know a different set of tools probably a little bit more applicable to working in film. One of the things that John does with his students that's really helpful and extremely applicable to film is he gets his students to, before they write a piece, to describe, you know, in non-musical language, what the architecture of their piece is going to be. And I think that the idea of understanding the concept of what you're doing and what it's going to mean, what the meaning of of your notes is going to be, is A, really helpful even if you're writing just abstract music, but B, it's extremely helpful if you're working in film. Right. Yeah, I guess most of the job is the storytelling aspect. So having those, or having intention about each note and each section of a piece is so hugely important. Exactly. That's right. So can you talk about your first gig and how that came about? There were sort of, there were two tracks. I can't remember which literally started first. So on one track, I started doing student films for my friend who I'd gone to undergraduate with, who then when I went to Juilliard, he went to NYU film school. So he started doing like short film projects at NYU and I would write the music for those. And then that led to working on other student films by his classmates because people saw the things that I did for him and, and they liked the music that I wrote. 
And then ultimately that led to an NYU student making a a feature-length film as his thesis that went to Sundance. Um, It was a movie called Hurricane Streets, and it won like three major awards at the Sundance Film Festival in 1997, I think. And that was at a time when, you know, I think that the independent film market was just much more wide open then. People were really looking, you know, if you go to Sundance now, you're seeing a lot of films with a lot of big stars and, you know, and in many cases with significant finances behind them. At that time, there was just a lot more small budget movies with people that you hadn't seen before. And I was just fortunate to work on a movie that got a lot of attention um, at that time. So, so in the, you know, in the wake of, of that movie's success at Sundance, I, you know, started working with an agent and was able to, to continue getting jobs in independent films and continue along that path. And then at the same time, uh, another friend of mine was in the cast of this show on MTV called The State. And I was, you know, you you and I have a mutual friend, Craig Wedron, who he had been composing music for for them, but his band went on tour. He was in the band Shudder to Think. And they went on tour. And so they needed a composer. And I came in and started writing music for them. And, and so I worked on that show. And then that ultimately led to more opportunities writing for TV projects. And so between those two you know, paths that kind of got me on, on, on my feet as far as working professionally. Yeah, that must have been an exciting time. In some ways, from the outside, it almost seems like each project then led to like a bigger one and was almost like a bigger footstep forward. Did it feel like that? For sure. You know, I, I would definitely say that, you know, if I, if I look at my career as a whole, like it was never the case that, you know, I did one thing that like, was a huge elevation, you know, that, that just like opened the door for everything else. It, every, everything was just kind of like one, one step forward. And, you know, I would say that in 1999, I, I did this movie Girl Fight, which that won the grand jury prize at Sundance that year. And that really kind of opened some doors to, you know, working on some bigger budget projects, but everything did, still felt like one little step at a time. And it still feels like that. What would be like the next step, you think, in your career? Like, what would you want to be doing today? I mean, look, you know, I'm really lucky. I'm working on a lot of varied projects. I feel like every time out, I am able to shuffle the deck and just find a new path, a a new approach. And that's what I enjoy. My goal is just to to keep evolving as a musician. And the reason that I like working in film so much, or one of the reasons that I like working in film so much, is that, you know, you can approach each film as a new opportunity for storytelling, a new opportunity to make your orchestra a little different, to find a a slightly different formulation of what your instrumental palette is going to be. And that's the, you know, that's the pleasure of the job for me. You know, I I am somebody who I like, I enjoy puzzles um, of, of, of all kinds, you know, crossword puzzles and jigsaw puzzles and escape rooms and things like that. 
And, you know, for me, a, a movie feels a little bit like a puzzle of a kind. You know, you, you're, you're looking for a code to help tell the story. And, you know, and that can be thematic content. That can be a color. That can be a combination of instruments. It can be finding a special soloist. Like there's always something that helps to unlock the storytelling of an individual film. And, and, you know, for me, the pleasure of the job is, is, is going through that process and, and breaking that code. Yeah, that's so interesting because I think the thing I love most about your music is that each film does have its own landscape, like sonically. And then it seems like you don't go back to that for other projects. You just kind of keep pushing forward. You know, it, it's really true. Um, I, I try, or it's true that I try to, you know, and mm. it, it's, fun, it's funny. In a weird way, like I, I have been fortunate that I haven't really... I don't really get hired that often with the directive to redo something that I've already done. Um, I think a lot of composers do, you know, I think a, a lot of composers write wonderful scores and then they get hired and they're like, well, we love what you did on that thing. Can you just do that again on this? And, you know, it, it's funny, like it surprises me in a way that I never got a call saying like, can you do a thing like Devil Wears Prada, but like a little different, but not too different? You know, like that just never happened. And I guess there could be individual instances where, you know, I got hired on something because they'd tempt a lot with my music, but I can't actually think of it off the top of my head. That's so interesting too, because a friend uh, today brought up that your Devil Wears Prada score is kind of like the the template of how to do a perfect comedy score at Berkeley. Oh, that's really funny. Well, that's very nice. I've been told over time, like, oh, my God, that score is just always being tempted, And, you know, it's like it's been used so many times. And I've definitely heard a lot of things that I think maybe sound like it. But I've never really been asked to to do that thing again. And I sometimes, um, if I'm being honest, like, I've, I've bemoaned that fact, you know, like, why aren't they coming to me to do that? But I'm really lucky because it just has kept me from it's really hard to repeat yourself and feel creative. And, you know, I, I always find that, like, I hate having to deal with temp music. And I hate it the most when it's my own music. Because at least if it's somebody else's music, you can think to yourself, okay, well, like, how would I do this kind of a thing? You know, if you're in a situation where the director really likes a piece of temp music that somebody else wrote, you can think like, okay, well, what's my take on this? If it's yours then you know how you did that. Like, it, you already know exactly how you arrived at at that, you know, at that result. And you know, you know how you would do that because you've already done that. It adds nothing new to the vocabulary to kind of have that there. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, so I've, I've been fortunate that I haven't been asked to repeat myself that much. It's so cool because I know another topic that came up on a previous episode was the idea of getting caught in like a genre bubble. Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, you did do a lot of comedies for a while and some of them are some of my favorite movies from when <laughs> I was a kid. But it seems like you've gone way past that and you didn't get stuck as like a comedy composer. I feel like, I, you know, look, it's certainly been a lot of work to get out of that. And I am glad that that feels that way to you. I, I you know, that that's my hope. Uh, I've certainly done a lot of work outside of comedy, and, you know, particularly as time has gone on. 
You know, like, I love working on comedies. Like, I've had a great experience. And, you know, a lot of the comedies that I've done, or a, a number of them, are really good movies that have stood the test of time. And I'm proud to have worked on them. But nobody wants to be stuck doing one thing. It's just boring. It, it doesn't matter what it is. You know, if all, if all I did were English period dramas, I'd be bored of that, too. And I'd probably want to do a comedy. <laughs> So, uh, you know, the, the, the good thing about comedy is that it enabled me, even, even while I felt a little bit stuck in that genre, I certainly, like on a musical level, that did not translate to being stuck in one musical genre. Like if, if all I ever did was write scores that sounded like The Devil Wears Prada, that would have been really hard to, to do. But getting to write, you know, Spy and Tropic Thunder and Idiocracy and Blades of Glory, you know, all of which are different. They're all serious scores in their own way, just sort of drawing on different tropes. And, you know, when the job of a comedy score is to provide sort of a, a, a serious counterpoint to something funny on the screen and to be a serious storyteller, even even as there are jokes that's still a very fulfilling scoring process to undergo. Right. I mean, serious music in a very, very goofy world or vice versa can kind of open up doors. Oh yeah. No, I mean, you know, that, that's the thing. Like, I think that some of, you know, some of the things that I am, you know, that I've been proud to revisit later in life have been movies that are silly in a lot of ways but the kind of storytelling that we've done musically has helped the audience to actually like feel emotion for the characters. Like I, th I think that Blades of Glory is a good example of something that's, it's so goofy in a lot of ways, but you care. And I think that when, when the music is successful, doing that kind of approach, it makes for very satisfying storytelling. Yeah, it's almost like you're mimicking how serious the Will Ferrell character is in Blades of Glory, where their whole goal is to get back to the top, where Tropic Thunder is to keep on with the mission. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And on that, so uh, your former assistant, Ludwig Gorenson, I think started with you on Tropic Thunder. That's right, yeah. And he raves about you as a mentor. And yeah. I was curious if you had mentors in the past who've readied you to help train other future composers or if that's something that you've been working on on your own? You know, um, I actually, you know, I never worked any under anybody else. And so I, I never, I never really had somebody who filled that role for me. What I would say is that when I was looking to hire an assistant for the first time, I, I went and talked to Hans Zimmer because, you know, because he'd had so much success working with assistants and, and integrating them into his process. And at, at, at the time we had the same agent. And, and so he arranged for me to talk to him, which was incredibly helpful. He was really generous and insightful. You know, one of the things that he said was, first of all, he said, hire somebody who can do something better than you can do it yourself. Like, don't just hire somebody who can do the things that you can do, but not as well. Like, you know, you want somebody with a specialty, with a special take. So that was one thing. 
And, you know, and, and so sure enough, like when I was looking at, you know, at applicants, you know, there were a lot of people, very fine composers who were, you know, who were mainly sort of classically focused and very accomplished, but like I could already do that stuff. But then you had Ludwig, who was a guitarist, which I don't do. Um, and so that seemed incredibly useful and, and, and it was useful. And then, and then, you know, the other thing that Hans felt and, and, and in fairness, in, in, in this case, I kind of had an implicit sense that this was what I wanted. You know, he was like, you don't want, like, you don't want somebody who just like can sound like other composers. Like you want to develop somebody who's an artist and has a real voice. And, and Ludwig clearly stood out some of his work had a real personality and a real, um, you know, it, it, they were clearly coming from a unique point of view. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, so it, it was, it was a, a, a very clear choice. Um, and, uh, I don't know whatever happened to Ludwig, but, uh, yeah, it kind of fell off the face of the earth. Yeah, exactly. It's too bad. So much, so much promise. Wait, who's that Hans Zimmer guy too? I've never <laughs> Amazing. And actually, out of curiosity, too, because I imagine there's some listeners who might be looking, I mean, when this quarantining is over, to get into an assistant gig for the first time or uh-huh. to work with another composer. Do you still feel like nowadays, too, that people are sending in music when you're looking for someone that's more classically focused and that's still in that kind of same world? I guess what I would say is that I'm still seeing a lot of people presenting themselves as somebody who can do a little bit of everything. I'm being directed to a web page and there's an embedded music player and one thing says epic and there's very, very well executed sort of epic orchestral hybrid music. And, you know, and then there's one that says, you know, orchestral and that's, you know, and, you know, and then there's one that says comedy and like, that's the one with like pizzicato strings and, and fake clarinet. And obviously that's not true. Like that's not true of all web pages. There's a lot of super talented people writing unique music. And, and I've been fortunate to work with, with some of them. But I, I guess I would say it for, for listeners who are um, thinking about how to present themselves to composers I guess I don't speak for all composers, but what I would say is that I am looking for somebody with a unique voice who presents themselves as having a point of view rather than somebody who is presenting themselves as somebody who can do a little bit of everything. I think it's very good advice. I might have to get rid of that comedy cue on my website <laughs> with the strings. And no, it's so true, though. Everyone does that. And I guess. I mean, there are more exciting ways to do comedy scores than that, too. For sure. For sure. And, and well, why is that comedy music? You know, it's like one of my favorite comedy scores in the past bunch of years was Cliff Martinez's score for Game Night, which is great. And, like, that doesn't sound like a comedy score. It sounds like a cool Cliff Martinez score. And um, that's not what comedy music is anymore. You know, like pizzicato strings and clarinet. Like, like when was the last time that was a comedy score? Like, it's not, it's a, it's an old idea. One thing here, two more questions, I guess. Um, so Mandy Hoffman wrote in, what is your favorite score you've done so far, Teddy? 
Mandy. Um, that's a really hard question for me to answer. I, I like, I, I, I really, um, I would say like, I was going to say the platitude that like, they're like, they're my children and I love them all equally. But the truth is in this case, uh, they're my children and I all have reservations about them equally. Um, you know, like I, I, I always have a hard time enjoying work that I've done. I would say that it's really hard for me to, to, to unreservedly love something that I've done. I would say that of, of, of movies of mine that I've watched a bunch, I'll, I'll say a couple of movies that I like. I think the score to Spy worked out really well. Like I've seen that a bunch because my kids watch it all the time now. And, and I've been sort of pleased with, with how that one came out. I'm really proud of The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. When I watched Bombshell, there are some cues that I feel really worked well. Um, and I think that there's some really effective music in Destroyer, which is a movie that I, that I really love and was, was proud to work on. So th- those are a couple that I've, that I've seen in, in, in recent times that I haven't been horrified by. Cool. Well, we're going to go on to the final part of the show. It's just tech talk. This is a segment where I list off a tech topic and you say as much or as little as you want about it and how you use it in your life. Great. Uh, so the first one here is DAW. Okay. I'm a Cubase user. Uh, I was in. I worked in DP for many years, starting in around '99, and so so I switched over to Cubase a couple of years ago. I really like it. It really it allows me to work very quickly, and I've been very very happy to have made that that change. Um, I also use Ableton Live via Rewire which I think is a wonderful program for working in audio. It feels very, very creative. And again, just encourages me to do detailed programming that even in Cubase, I find difficult to do. Like it's just a little hard to to get there to do the precise programming. And so then you just tend not to do it. And um, Ableton is just so great at encouraging you to automate interesting moves and just, you know, and just go a, a, a little bit further with your sounds. And uh, I love it. Next is pianos. Pianos. Is this a question about oh, so the tech pianos? Oh, sample libraries. Sample libraries. Real, real li- or real life ones, too. I'll talk about sample library. I mean, I, 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 I do like my P, my, my, my real piano a lot, but in terms of sample libraries, uh, I'm really liking some of the native instrument stuff. The grandeur I think is very nice and playable. I always like, I think piano tech is great and, and also very, very playable. And finally, I think Keyscape is, is really terrific. I mean, the Spectrasonics folks always do great work, and and the uh, and the acoustic pianos in there are are excellent. It's funny you mentioned piano tech because I recently was doing a big band thing, and then inspired by you, I was using sample modeling and piano tech, and trying to do the whole thing using sample model instruments. So the IK Multimedia Moto drums and Moto bass. <laughs> <laughs> how'd that How'd that go? 
it's pretty cool. I feel like that tech is going to, I don't know, it's, it's really interesting to watch. I feel like it's surprisingly emotive at times. Yeah, and that's right. It's just like, I don't know, I feel like there's a weird mental block for me not, like when you think of some sample libraries, you think about that studio they recorded in, even if it's just in the back of your head. Yeah. When it's like a Spitfire library is at air or orchestral tools is at this room in Berlin. And with sample modeling, it's like, I know it's done in, in a, a anechoic chamber <laughs> right, right. in a closet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or it's like, yeah, you use like, I don't know, the Tina Guo cello library and you just feel like you're connecting with a player in yeah. a weird way. I, I totally get that. Um, and, you know, look, I, I, I use a lot of Spitfire stuff and I, they, they, they do great work, uh, great work. And I'm kind of amazed at how much they're doing. And uh, I, I like to support them. But, uh, you know, one thing about the physical modeling instruments is that there's just so much flexibility to the music making. And it's just, I think, important not to be led by the sound of your samples. And, you know, the way that the sample modeling stuff responds to breath encourages a level of expressivity that you're not going to get out of samples in the same way. Even if the samples sound a little bit more realistic, and they do, you know, I, I think that the expression is so important and not being limited, you know, not being limited by the same, you know, sometimes you don't even realize that you're doing something because it's what you can make your samples do well. So something something that really lets you connect to, you know, that really lets you express you, what you want to express musically, I think is so important. That's so interesting because I feel like I've heard the opposite advice too, that you should write towards the sample strengths, but I think that can be so limiting. Well, right. It, it's, you know, it's like it, that gets you to one result. And, and granted, like I'm lucky that on... You know, I'm working on projects where I'm always at the end going to be replacing the the demo with live musicians. So, mm-hmm. so I have the ability to write, you know, thinking about musicians rather than what am I going to have to make sound great with, you know, within the box. If you're doing it in the box, then that changes the the equation for sure. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I I just think that libraries that enable you to express yourself and express your ideas the best um, are are the ones that I gravitate towards. Hmm. Amazing. You have next to your uh, breath controller? I have a breath controller. I have a, a tech control breath controller. It's a very, very simple piece of technology, um, but uh, but it works pretty well. And when did you discover that? You know, uh, oh, you know what? It, it was that, um, you know, you know, um, Arnie Wallander, who, who, he's the guy behind Note Performer, which is that Sibelius plugin that, that, that does a really good job of performing a Sibelius score. Do you, are you familiar with that? Right. I am, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So before he did that, he created this thing called Wallander Instruments. It was a plugin and it was just all completely physically modeled sounds. Like, unlike sample modeling, which was a hybrid of samples and physical modeling, this was just all completely physically modeled. And I somehow, I think I was on a forum and, and I learned about it. 
And I got, and it was inexpensive. It was very, very, very light in terms of CPU because there were no samples involved. And you could make it sound really good and really expressive. And in fact, there was, so in Marley and Me, there was a key French horn solo at the end of the film, which I had done on Wallander Instruments. And the director just loved it so much because it had this expressivity and, you know, it was, it was, he wanted exactly that. And we, you know, we really just couldn't get a live player to do it, you know, to, to, to exactly match what, what he loved about it. And I think maybe and some of the Wallander stuff is in the final film. Um, wow. And, uh, and it sounds pretty good. Well, if that's not a testament to it, then yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, you killed it here, Teddy. Uh, do you want to let the people know what uh, you have going on? Sure. Um, oh, man. So I'm I'm in the middle of a film called uh, The Good House, starring Sigourney Weaver and Kevin Klein, And that's really great. And it's, it's with uh, two, two directors that I love, Maya Forbes and Wally Walidarski. Um, they did uh, the movie Infinitely Polar Bear and um, and The Polka King. And now I'm just starting to work on a film called The Eyes of Tammy Faye, which is about uh, Tammy Faye and Jim Baker. It stars Jessica Chastain and uh, and Andrew Garfield, and it's a lot of fun. So I'm, I'm, I'm really having a good time working on that. Amazing. Well, Teddy, thank you so much for being on here. Thank you, Matt. It's really, really fun to do it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong.